This is a Christ Central Church MP3 audio series. This audio was not recorded in its entirety because of technical issues. We do apologize. 1 Samuel 31, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and his, all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped his armor and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, they burned, where they burned them. They took their bodies, they took their bones rather, and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. This is the word of God. I like endings, um, beginnings and endings. They come together, of course, obviously. But uh, this is an end of a sermon series on 1 Samuel. Um, uh, it is uh, the end of vacation time. Uh, some of you with uh, uh, grandparents get to spend extra time with grandchildren and, uh, uh, and family, getting to see family. And, uh, and whether it was delightful or... Um, or um, or hard, like some family time can be, um, it is good for it to come to end as well because it is a sweet time to be treasured as it is. Thanksgiving uh, is ending and, uh, and uh, football season is ending and in a bigger picture, 2004 is ending, which to me is just one of the oddest years. I mean, I've only had 30 of them, but uh, 30 some of them, but one of the oddest years I've uh, I've experienced in a while with political and war and uh, just upheaval all around. And um, I also like endings like I got to see this weekend. Uh, I, with a bazillion other people this weekend, went and watched a movie. Um, and I watched uh, National Treasure, um, which was a perfect uh, uh, Hollywood movie. Uh, all the suspense, um, uh, all the kind of no way this could have ever happened. Um, and with a perfect happy ending, uh, they got, well, this isn't going to ruin it. You knew this was going to happen, but, uh, 
they got the treasure, and Nicolas Cage got the girl, and uh, um, and the sidekick got the uh, uh, the millions as well. You know, it all just worked out perfectly. But I have to confess to you that I also like disturbing endings. I like disturbing endings of movies uh, like Changing Lanes and Apocalypse Now and A Man Without a Face. I like Vizart, and I like the Manor Theater. Um, I like names that uh, I like movies that have these kind of hard endings where you kind of left scratching your head unresolved to some degree, and uh, I like those endings um, because they uh, and I'm not saying they are because they're just as Hollywood sometimes too, but uh, but but they seem real, they seem authentic and, and true, uh, and, and you know uh, on my cynical days they just seem more uh, more right, um, but. The, but you have this weird ending of the book of 1 Samuel, which is a kind of combination of both. There's some happiness to it. It's not in the passage you just read in any way. But it's mostly a disturbing ending. Uh, it has some hints of things, like in the last paragraph that we can talk about. But it's, it's a book that, that ends, or a half book, if you will, First and Second Samuel. There, there are two volumes, if you will, on one, uh, of one story. But this volume ends um, with Saul's suicide. It ends with a, a difficult and hard thing, um, and uh, and it's picking up on themes that run out throughout uh, the passage, throughout the book of First Samuel. Things like uh, uh, the place of the prophet, and the place of the king, and the place of the priesthood. It, it picks up things like um, like how David and, and how David fits as a king, and how uh, Saul fits as a king, and. And this is the end of that sermon series. And I just want to take you through some of the things we went through in the sermon series and kind of lead us up to this point. Uh, this sermon series, or this book, started out with, really, Pastor Howard, I, I, one of the best sermons I've ever heard you preach. And if you were here uh, on that first week, 12, year, 12 weeks ago, uh, about this incredible story of the people of Israel who are, who are really without a priest, without a prophet, without a king, without a leadership besides Yahweh himself, and 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 it evol- It starts out this book that end- is going to end this book of vol- this this volume that's going to end with uh, a triumph of a king and a tragedy of a king. Starts out with a lowly person, uh, uh, a, a woman who can't bear children, um, uh, a priesthood that's just in total mess when, under Eli, um, a fattened priesthood, and it kind of evolves and it it works through themes like in uh, remember the the ark that has traveled all the way through. Um, Philistia, and it's uh, it's been stolen, and it's uh, and it's um, and it causes all those plagues that happen, and and it, it's kind of a, a discussion or a, a treatment of the priesthood and what's wrong with with the kind of religious center of the church of of the covenant community, and then quickly it moves after that into uh, to kings, uh, and and not just a, a, a the the um, the priesthood, but the kingship, and. Uh, and what happens is Israel starts to ask for a king like the other nations. And they want a rock star. They want to pick a guy who they really dig, who looks great. I think Pastor Howard's sermon was called uh, Star Search. Um, and they were looking for the Star Search guy, the great guy with all the perfect resume. And it goes on, and David comes in at about 17 or 18, really 16, 17, and 18. And uh, God anoints David as a king, as an alternative king, as his, the king of his own choosing. And then the next few chapters is just as we've we've kind of gone back and forth with between uh, the the work of David and the work of Saul and and their actions and their battles and all the things that they're going on and they get they get back and forth play uh, what who and, and compared along the way and we realize that what God's doing here is something 
different. It's something different than what they asked for. They asked for a king. He gave it to them, but he gave them so much more. It's the end of a season in uh, a sermon series, but it's also the end of Saul's life. And you will see now, as we walk through this story, the tragic end of a man hell-bent on self-sufficiency, on self-service, on self-protection, on self-vindication. And ultimately, he does the most self-oriented, the most, uh, the most extreme expression of autonomy, of self-autonomy, and that is self-destruction. We pick up where Saul left off in your passage in 31.1 that you have before you. It says, uh, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and Israelite fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Geboa. If you remember Mount Geboa, we talked about uh, that this is picking up soon after. If you remember, that we, we, even though it was in October 31st when we did this, but we had the Witch of Endor story where he looked over the valley, and he saw all the Philistines, and he got really scared. And so he went all the way to Endor and, uh, and passed around Mount Geboa where he was supposed to be. Uh, and uh, and and went and 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 uh, Saul uh, asked for a, about a medium there, but they're on this incredible mountain, this kind of hill. Um, uh, he dies, and, it, and it's a battlefield around uh, around this valley called Jezreel, uh, or it's also called Megiddo. Megiddo. And people have fought there for years, both before Saul. Uh, the, the Old Testament has lots of records of it. And since Saul. And I don't mean just since Saul in the Bible sense, though there's lots of kings that fought there. But I mean people like Napoleon, who said, this hill, this valley, and these hills is the most perfect battlefield. There are people from Af- the Turks have fought there, and the Crusades fought there, and uh, the British had fought there at one point, and the Persians had fought there, and the Egyptians had fought there, and all near this hill called Har, or in, in Hebrew Har Megiddo, or Armageddon, you might hear in the New Testament. Uh, the perfect battlefield is where they were fighting. But it's a really bad battlefield to retreat from. When you're on the hill looking down, it's great because you have this incredible offensive ability. But if you're in the valley, it's a really bad pace to retreat from because uh, people can just pick you off as you try to run up the hill. And that's what happens. Uh, Verse 2 says, The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, or Abinadab, and Malkishua is my salvation his name. My king is my salvation. I want you to think about that for a second. If you're going to name your, your, your son, my king is my salvation. You either have a lot of great respect for your, your king, which would be an okay thing, I guess, um, unless you are the king. And then there's something wrong. Retreating people going up Mount Geboa. And the archers, the Philistine archers are known for being incredible, incredible archers, incredible uh, uh, soldiers. And one arrow stuck and wounded, critically wounded Saul. And so you move from this scene that's this, uh, this battle scene that's kind of, uh, when I think of it, I, 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 and the way it's described is this, you know, huge sweeping scene over the armies, uh, a kind of uh, Lord of the Rings-esque, you know, feel. And then it kind of moves in and, it's, and it pans down into these two men walking up the hill somewhere at the crest of the hilltop and has a conversation between a, a fallen king or a falling king and his armor bearer. 
And it goes like this, according to the scriptures. It says in verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. I don't know what the exact translation is, but gosh, uncircumcised fellows doesn't seem like a war kind of a, a, a statement. But uh, you think it might be a little bit more uh, arduous and, and, and maybe even cantankerous than that. Uh, but draw your sword and run me through or these guys are going to abuse me. We come to the last command of King Saul as general and king. The last command given to his last soldier that he has. And it is, kill me. Two reasons for this. One, he's very clear about fear of what they do to him. But not just fear of what they do to him in terms of the physical pain. But the other reason is fear of what they would do to him because of the shame that they might cause him. Kill me because I don't want them to have the final laugh. Kill me because I don't want them to kill me and get the joy of doing that. Kill me because I'm afraid of what they'll do to me. Kill me so I don't have to face my enemies. Kill me so they won't dishonor me. I won't lose my reputation or my status or dignity. I will die in death in a different way. I'd say kill me so I don't have to face disgrace or shame or pain. He is asking his armor bearer, the one, now I don't know if we can have a a picture of what an armor bearer is in the day, but it is your most loyal comrade. It is your battle buddy, if anybody knows in military terms. It is your battle buddy. It's the person you're in the foxhole with. It is a, a rank difference, but it is the person who carries your sword. It is the person who carries your shield. There is no more important person for you to preserve your life than an armor bearer. There is no more significant person who's pledged anymore. He has pledged his life to save this man, to rescue this man and fight to the death for the sake of the glory of the armies of God. And he asks him to kill him. He asks him to give his very, the very thing his purpose is, he asks him to give that up so that he doesn't have to face his shame. And the scripture says, but the armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. Saul's last command of his life is disobeyed. You cannot kill the king of Israel, the armor bearer would say. And he knows this. David, who was his competing king, wouldn't kill the the king of Israel. He knew that he could not do that. He knew that he should not do that. He had twice the opportunity to do it and didn't take it. You cannot kill the king of Israel. This is the one person called to protect Saul and to fight for the armies of God. And he's asked not to do it and he refuses. In an honorable way, refuses. And so Saul, without other word from Scripture, took his own sword, he said, it says, and fell on it. Saul took his own sword and fell on it. So we have the end of Saul. But not the end of what his reign produces. Because it gets worse, really. This disturbing ending ends even worse. The armor bearer in grief and terror. It says the armor bearer was so when Saul was dead, Saul he was dead. He too fell on the sword and died with him. No purpose. No, I can't believe the, the king of the Jews has just given up and was gonna has just done. He gives up too. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying uh, at all. But he gives up too. 
And then it says in verse 7, when the Israelites along the valley, uh, uh, along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the kingship of Saul and the fighting protective acts of Saul, when they realize that the armies are gone and Saul has killed himself, the actual towns, the things being protective, get up and leave and the Philistine armies come and take in the camp. The end of Saul's reign is an abandoned set of cities. The end of Saul's reign is something really awful. I was reading, I've been reading a lot about Sadr City, or Sadr City, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, Sadr City, um, which is in, um, is in Iraq. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a slum in Iraq. And uh, it's one of the places that there's a hotbed for um, uh, reactions to uh, the... Uh, the, the American military being there. Um, and, uh, and one of the guys, just talking about the despair of what it must have felt like if you were to leave your home as a, as, a, as a person who was supposed to be protected by this King Saul, and you realize that the army's gone, the sons are dead, and now the king killed himself, what happens? And he says this, I've been reading from, a, uh, I was reading some excerpts, from a, and a man named Hassan Kadim, just 36-year-old, resident of Sadr City says, the city is like a corpse. Whatever you do to make it beautiful, the body is still dead. What a sad situation in Sadr City. And what I think a fair uh, illustration of what it must have been like to leave the cities of Israel because of Saul's failure, Saul's lack of leadership and the Philistine takeover. And it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse because it's not just a communal problem. The very thing Saul's trying to prevent ends up happening. And this is the NC 17 portion of the, uh, of the sermon or of the text. And you heard it. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they met, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the asterisk and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Basically, they mutilated him. They stripped him naked. They took his armor as a, as a, as a celebration of, what, um, of, of their accomplishments. They beheaded him, posted his head... Uh, or, or his 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 uh, headless body uh, next to the the ashtoreth poles and to the to and we find out in Chronicles the Temple of Dagon Temple of Dagon just so you know was the very temple that the Ark was in in chapters four through seven uh, we had talked about before when the Ark went all the way through and the very thing that Yahweh had collapsed a couple of times now the Temple of Dagon has Saul right next to him and what's happening here is it's kind of a get you back. Uh, what the Philistines are going to kind of saying, we got you back. I know you got us one round when you toppled our Dagon, but now we got you back uh, because now we have your king's head and his armor and his body stapled, essentially, to, uh, to Dagon. We got you back. Declaring, really shaking their fists at uh, Yahweh and his people uh, is what they were doing there. Disturbing, isn't it? not very Thanksgiving-ish. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, really am, I really am sorry. 
Um, I'm, I'm really sorry, not just because it's before us, but because it happened. <laughs> it happened uh, as it is written. And I want to interrupt this story because one of the themes we keep talking about throughout this, this, uh, this passage and throughout First, First Samuel is the difference between David and Saul. And let, let, it was, I was so glad Pastor Howard preached the sermon last week about David's messing up. Because David actually did mess up a good deal, and all we have to do is read 2 Samuel and we get him to mess up real good. But uh, remember when he was trying to take revenge and, 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 uh, and kill Nabal? And, and Howard said that Abigail actually had to, to, um, to, to come in and intercede for uh, David. And David's been the good king or the good future king all this time. Well, David is a good future king. And he does have an incredible righteousness. that is, It's really unparalleled at this point in Scripture. It's really an amazing thing that God gifted him with. But at the same time, the difference between David and Saul isn't one's real good and one's real bad. I was listening to a sermon. Um, I, I forgot my computer. Uh, I forgot my bag, and a, uh, a friend came and visited uh, last week, and uh, we went out to lunch afterward, and I put my bag in his car on the way out, and he dropped me off, and I, he lives in Columbia, and when I realized it, uh, he was already almost in Columbia. And so I had to drive back to Columbia Sunday night, uh, last Sunday night, and I was driving down there, and I popped a sermon in. And uh, one of, uh, actually one of Pastor Howard's and I's old professors was, was giving a testimony of how he came to Christ. And he was, he's this German guy, and he's way too smart for his own good. He's brilliant. Uh, uh, he, was, he actually converted um, uh, by just reading the Greek New Testament over and over again, um, which he's German, mind you, and reading the Greek New Testament over and over again. And he, was, uh, uh, and he was reading it, and he said, I realized that when it comes to Paul, there are two ways to live, reliant on self or reliant on God. And I knew as a university student at the time, I was reliant on self. There are two ways to live, self-reliant or God-reliant. The difference between Saul and David is self-reliance or God-reliance. And that's what's going on here. It leads one of the commentators to say this. (laughs) Talking about... um, Well, Matthew Henry writes, As he lived, Saul being, so he died, proud and jealous, a terror to himself and all who are around him. Matthew Henry also writes, Like Judas, he leapt into the hell before him to escape the hell within him. Too scared, too um, fearful, too not trusting of who who, who the Lord was to just come to grips with the fact that he was, not, he was to be replaced as king. His son Jonathan was able to do it well. His son Jonathan had the, the, the rights to the kingship and said, David, I would never claim my rights. God has called you to this task. This is the one year to be. I, David, Jonathan got it. And Saul just wouldn't give up. He was holding on, holding on with everything he had, relying on everything he had. He was, he was holding those handles to the, to the inside of the car, sure that he could hold on to his kingship in his own might. And it was just too powerful for him. Now, when I use that quote, he leapt into the hell before him to avoid the hell within him, I want to make one very clear statement to you. I do not believe that committed suicide necessitates going to, to see final judgment. 
I do not believe that. I don't think the scripture teaches that. It may, just like any death can occur that way. But I do not believe it says that. When I say hell here, it's more metaphorical hell. Uh, to walk into the hell before him versus the hell within him. I just want to be 100% clear with that at first. Um, so you have this kind of, what does that mean for us? What, what does that mean if we're going to be, I, I would say that we are both, um, as Christians, we are ones who are ultimately those who are, uh, are, are God-reliant. We've been made God-reliant. We've admitted that we're God-reliant. This is what those confessions that we do are all about. So what does this mean for us that we're God-reliant or uh, God, as Christians, we are God-reliant in an ultimate sense. But because we have come from people who are self-reliant, we, we, we become, as a people who are self-reliant, we're still battling that, that self-reliance and God-reliance on. We are still people who struggle with our own self-advancement. Sure that God wouldn't advance us at his own time or his own cause. We're still people who do the self-pity, knowing for sure that we have to protect ourselves and we have to be people who, who, um, who, who comfort ourselves because there's no way that God would actually be the one who comes and comforts us. We have to be the ones who are this. Uh, are, 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 what, uh, uh, um, what ends up happening, though, is that these things turn around and they become things that we do. We become so self-focused that we end up becoming self-haters and self-destroyers. And because we're so consumed with the self, we're so dependent or reliant on how we are, what we're doing, how we, what, what, what's going on with us. Paul says at some point, at one who is God-reliant, I don't even question... Um, my, I don't even question what I've done in the past or I don't even evaluate what I'm doing right now. I, all I do is, is, is cling to Christ and, his, and my identity in Him alone. I don't even judge myself. I don't judge others. I don't even judge myself. I walk forward in what Christ has done for me. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Let me, show, let me tell you how that manifested in David. David, in chapter 16, is ordained as king to be. And I told you this before, but he's had two opportunities to kill Saul and refuses to do it. Two opportunities. In fact, his mighty men are going, look, God gave him to you. Knock it out. Kill him right here. It's all done. And he goes, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. Aggressive acts like the equivalent of killing Saul. David, on the other hand, says he cuts off the edge of Saul's garment at one point and takes his spear as a, 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 of Saul's spear at one point and yells across after he gets far enough away, he yells across and says, I could have killed you, but I spared your life. Just give up, would you? Just give up, would you? Do we have equivalents of that in our hearts and lives where we don't actually move forward and, and, and try to keep advancing ourselves, but not just advancing ourselves? What would it be? And brothers and sisters, I do not know what this would be like. I wish I did. What would it be if we never defended ourselves? What if we didn't defend ourselves in reputation? I'm not saying... You fathers and mothers out there, you shouldn't defend your children or you shouldn't defend your household and families. Think more in terms of reputation. Think more in terms of what's inside and what you, what you want people to think of you. What if we never defended ourselves? What if we never took an advance on someone else's reputation nor defended our own reputation? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I think that's what this passage is calling us to. Be waiting. God-reliant waiting on God's eking out our purposes in our lives. That's what God is calling us to. 
and try to save his dignity. It's amazing. It's not completely amazing. It's not all better, but they really have this incredible heroic act that they do. They come in and they fast and they honor him. They come in and they, and they, they, they basically get behind enemy lines and bring, this, uh, bring Saul's body back. And we know something is turning. Something is happening. And you're not supposed to do this when you're just ending 1 Samuel, but I've got to go into 2 Samuel because here's what happens. In 2 Samuel, by first, David finds out that, that uh, Saul and Jonathan are dead, and he mourns them. He writes a psalm in grief to them. And then in chapter 2, he moves his people back into, the other, back into Israel, and they anoint him as king. And he goes to the people of um, Jabesh-Gilead, and he says, um, David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had burned Saul. He sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, when they say, um, she not burned, buried Saul, um, the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, and this is now David saying, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What's happened here, the other end, the end of Saul's life is also the beginning of the right kingship over Israel. It, it's over. The competition that David never wanted to compete in is now over. God uses a Saul's sin sinlessly and has himself destruct, which puts David back as king. Don't worry. They're not rejecting your kingship, your leadership. They're rejecting me as king. The grace of this story isn't the hard, uh, painful, disturbing reality of Saul's life. The grace of this story is that Yahweh was faithful to his people when they didn't want to be faith when they didn't want to be faithful to him. The grace of this story is that Yahweh sustained Israel and gave them a righteous king even when they wanted a rock star king. And they didn't just give him the righteous king of David. David is amazingly righteous, and the, and the story is clear to say how good and wonderful he is. But he didn't just give him a righteous king. The point of the story is that it ends like any good volume one in an ellipsis. It ends with a dot, dot, dot. redemption much look i am i have no medical good reason to be scared about tomorrow with my son's uh finger due to technical difficulties this audio was not recorded in its entirety please accept our apology